Good to see our campers back, or at least part of them, able to be back with us tonight. So glad that we got to spend time together. Mentioned that this morning, talked a little bit about camp. But this morning, we want to go ahead and jump right into our lesson from this morning, uh, tonight. This morning, we raised a question about having a friend who was gay, and how should we as Christians, uh, how should we really apply or, or actually reply to that? How is it that we, we should act in regard to that when someone that we know or someone that we have contact with has that kind of thought or that kind of thinking or that kind of life? Well, this morning, as we begin to build the foundation for what we need to talk about, the really practical matters about talking to people or about people or with people or however you want to talk about those things, the, the foundation is, is basically this. We noted this morning that uh, homosexuality is condemned in all three dispensations of the Bible. In the patriarchal dispensation, it's condemned. In the Mosaic dispensation, it is condemned. And even in the New Testament, in the Christian dispensation, it is condemned. And so we don't have time tonight to go back and rehash that. We built that foundation this morning. But not only did we note that it's condemned in all three uh, uh, dispensations of the Bible... We also noted this morning, again, as foundation material, that when we're talking about homosexuality, we're talking about how that it fits into a broad category of sexual sin. And we noted from the book of Proverbs that uh, there was a young man who met a, uh, a prostitute and how that he was drawn in and found himself uh, at her house, if you will, and, and, and did not know what he had gotten himself into until it was too late. And that's what sexual sin is about. That's what Solomon was writing about, how that it will draw you in and it will take your heart and take your heart away from God. Now let me add one additional thought as we're still here on this point tonight. Sometimes we view homosexuality as something that is worse than other sins. Now, we, we put it in the category of sexual sins, and yet we sometimes look at it perhaps as being worse. And I gave a couple of reasons this morning. Perhaps it's because we don't identify with, with that kind of thing. You know, it may be that we've, we've somewhere fibbed on the truth along the way. Or, or maybe, you know, when we were younger, we, we stole something from a, from a store and we had to go take it back. Mom and Daddy made us go back and apologize. And, you know, we can identify with some of those kinds of things, but, but we really can't identify when it comes to being attracted to a person of the same sex. And so we get it in our mind that it must be worse because we can't identify as being a part of that. But you say, well, preacher, you know, you quoted this morning from the book of Leviticus how that, how that if a man lies with a man or a woman with a woman, that that is an abomination to God. You know, that's that big long word, that big A word, an abomination to God. And you're correct. We did look at that passage. We did look at that, uh, that statement. But let me throw something else at you, if you will. If you go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, at verse number 1, the Bible says that a false balance is an abomination to God. 
You see, if you treat someone, if you don't give them what they pay for, that's an abomination to God. It's in the same category, if you will, in God's eyes as what he says about the homosexual sin. Or, or let's try this one on, if you will. What about Proverbs chapter 12 at verse 22? There, the wise man says that lying lips are an abomination to God. Now, again, sometimes we may have been caught in lies, especially when we were younger, and, and we know that uh, as parents, we don't want our children to lie to us. You know, we let them off the hook for some things if they, if they don't tell us a lie about it. But lying lips are an abomination to God. Same terminology. Uh, what about Proverbs chapter 16, where he speaks in verse number 5 that an arrogant heart is an abomination to God. An arrogant heart. Being a haughty person. That is an abomination to God. Now, we all know what is said in the book of Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse number uh, 16 where the Bible says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. When you look at that, you see that seven things God hates, seven things that He mentions in that one list that are an abomination to Him even to the point of somebody who's a troublemaker among brethren. That is an abomination to God. And so just because we see something said in one, in one space doesn't mean that that makes it worse than anything else. It may be worse in our eyes, or we may consider it to be worse, but God considers it to be sin. God considers it to be sin that will one day be punished. And so when we look, we understand that homosexuality fits into that broad category of sexual sin, eh, fornication, bestiality, uh, adultery. You know, all of those things are covered in the Old Testament and the New. And they all are sinful in the sight of God. But then not only that, we noted this morning that the great problem, especially with sexual sin, that it, it results in the taking of one's heart away from God. You see, that's what Solomon's wives and his concubines did when he grew old. The Bible says they turned his heart away, turned it away from God. He didn't have that whole heart focused on God anymore. And we turn ourselves away from God because we turn to ourselves to fulfill our own pleasures and our own desires. And so, again, we mentioned that, talked about that this morning. But with all of that in mind... All of those things that, <coughs> that we placed on the foundation, I think we need to dive deeper into it tonight, into the relevant study that, uh, that, that this particular study is, as to how we as Christians should really deal with those who have that same-sex attraction. Let me list for you about <coughs> five or six things tonight. We'll talk about them as as much as we can in the time that we have allotted. Number one on our list tonight, we want to treat them right. We need to remember what the Bible says about how to treat people. About how to treat people. Any people, anyone. 
Notice in your Bible, in the book of Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, what the Apostle Paul has to say. And I hope you'll follow along. I didn't put any scriptures on the screen tonight, so, so you may want to follow along in your Bible. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice, first of all, that he says that we're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Who's he talking about <coughs> when he's talking about outsiders? Well, let's let the Bible define what the outsiders are. If you go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse number 12, Paul writes and says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? There's that term again, the same word again. Paul says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those, his very next words, is it that, uh, not those inside the church whom you're to judge? And so he clarifies for us who he's talking about as an insider. The same writer wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter number 4. And he identifies the outsider that he's speaking about as one who is outside of Christ. One who is still in his or her sins. Well, which sins? Any of them? Any of them? Paul says that we're to walk in wisdom toward those uh, people. And he talks about our speech. He said our speech is to be gracious, seasoned with salt. You know, if we were to sort of analyze that part and break it down, it would come out something like this, full of fresh and lively spiritual wisdom, earnestness, excluding all corrupt communication and anything that would be distasteful in severity. May I ask you this tonight? Would carrying a sign or posting a meme on Facebook which says something like this, God hates fags, would that be in line with this verse? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so people, you know, who perhaps mean well, we, we'll try not to judge their motives. People who mean well violate what God said about how to treat people when he or she does something like that. I can't find any exception in God's Word allowing us to treat worse one that we perceive to be a worse sinner. Can you? Can you think of any place in the Bible where God would allow us to treat that person worse just because we thought the sin that he or she committed was worse. You see, a hardened, critical person who destroys his neighbor with his slanderous, gossiping tongue it is not really the kind of person that God wants him to be, is he? To use the language of sometimes the world to talk about others is not right in any situation. I read one writer who made this observation, and I sort of tend to agree. He said, I'm not saying that homosexuality is, 
it is not a sin or it's not a tool of Satan to draw people away from God. But the Bible pictures Satan in a certain way. How does, how does the Bible picture Satan? Well, it pictures Satan as one who is the accuser. He accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God, Revelation chapter 12 at verse number 10. And then he makes this statement. He said the Bible doesn't say that Satan sodomizes them. He simply accuses them. What is the point? When we, when we make sinners worse, we, 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 we place categories... Sort of like when I went back at the beginning of our lesson and talked about, well, the Bible says it's an abomination. Yeah, it says a lot of things are. When we mistreat them because we perceive what they're doing is worse than what we may have done, we violated what Paul wrote for us in first, or Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Our speech is to be seasoned with salt. And you might look at the last part of that verse that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, that's what we're talking about tonight. That's what we're talking about in lessons like these. And so, we're trying to not, not mess up with the first part of that verse, but learn more about the second part. Well, what's the second thing that we need to remember about homosexuality and how we as Christians respond to it, react to it? We have to remember what Jesus did. We have to look to Him. He's our example, is He not? In the book of Luke, chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 3. There the Bible says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, him, near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable. Now, before we get to the parable part, let's talk about what's happening here. If you were living in the first century, in the time of Christ, in the Jewish communities, wherever they might be in Judea, there was one person who stood out as one of the greatest sinners that could ever, or, or one category of people who stood out as one of the greatest sinners that could ever be. They didn't point their finger and say, all right, Old Joe over there, he's a, he's a homosexual, and so he is, he is the worst of sinners. No, they pointed their finger at Matthew. And they pointed their finger at Simon and Zacchaeus. And they said, those guys, they're the worst sinners that ever been because they are Roman tax collectors. And so that's why when we're reading in the New Testament a lot of times that Jesus is mentioned as being with the tax collectors, you know, that's almost a, a curse word, a byword. That's, that's the worst of the worst sinners. And now the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling because Jesus is eating with, a, with, the, Pharisees, with the, the scribes, or rather with the, the tax collectors and the sinners. And so in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 that we just read, it ends by saying, so he told them, this parable. Actually, what he did was told them three. In verses 4 through 7, we read the parable of the lost sheep. In verses 8 through 10, we read the parable of the lost coin. 
And in verses 11 through 32, we read the parable of the lost sons, the prodigal son and then the elder brother. To understand this fully, we we go to another passage in the book of Matthew where the same thing is being discussed. The Bible says Jesus reclined at uh, at table in in the house. This is Matthew chapter 9, 10 through 13. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when they heard it, he said, Those are all those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the, but the sinners. You see, in both Matthew and Luke, what we have is Jesus being questioned about why are you eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Luke simply says he tells this parable, the parable of the, the lost coin, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And Matthew doesn't tell us about the parables. He just says they ask. We have Jesus responding in the book of Matthew, and it's basically something like this. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because it's the sick people who need a doctor. And it's the lost people who need a Savior. You see, when we're thinking about what Jesus did, Jesus was associating with the sinners. He was in their house. He was eating with them. I like this statement. It's not original with me. It's one that I borrowed from someone. It's never right to accept the sin with the sinner, nor is it right to reject the sinner with the sin. It's never right to accept the sin with the sinner, nor is it right to reject the sinner with the sin. You see, I believe that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was in their house, but he didn't participate in their sins. He loved the sinners. He went and he ate with them. And he brought many of them to his father. I mentioned a couple of names a minute ago. Matthew. First called Levi in the Bible, but Matthew. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. Who was Matthew? Oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You see, he became one of the apostles. And what little child hasn't been in Sunday school and saying about the wee little man named Zacchaeus, who also himself came to Jesus. Jesus never condoned the sins of those he saved. Here's the point, though. We as the body of Christ must learn to go where the head goes. Right? Who's the head of the church? Well, Christ is the head of the church. Well, his body has to go where the head goes. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote about a sinful man you know the story that there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man was, was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul has written a number of things about it, but down in verses 9 and 10, 
Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Do we understand what it means to be in the world, but not of it? At least in the sight of Jesus, what it means to be in the world, but not of it? You know, one who commits a sexual sin, or any other sin, who, is, who refuses to repent of it, who is a member of the body of Christ, <clears throat> Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 how we're to react to that person. We're to withdraw our fellowship from them in hopes of bringing them back to Christ. We don't treat them as though everything is fine and dandy anymore. But Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand. You see, there are a lot of sinful people out in the world, and that's the ones that Jesus came to save. He says, I didn't tell you not to associate with those folks. Why? Uh, not so you can go out and party with them and partake of their sins. No. Because you want to do what the head of the body was doing in bringing those people back to Christ. And so, you know, there's no way that we can absolutely have absolutely nothing to do with sinners. Even though it seems that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have come to that conclusion, even including homosexuality. You may have heard the name Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller sometimes writes some pretty good stuff. And here's a statement that he wrote. He put it this way. He said, Homosexuals are waiting to see if the Christian church has anything more to say after we declare that homosexuality is a sin. We spent most of our lesson this morning talking about the sinfulness of homosexuality. Is it enough just to say that it is sinful as God's people? Or should we be reaching out in the same way that our Lord did? You see, number one, we learn how to treat people. Paul talks about that. Number two, we need to remember what Jesus did. He was reaching out to them. Our message should be to any sinner, no matter what it is, one involved in sexual, sexual sin or any sinner, it, it shouldn't be only a thou shalt not, but also you can be healed. You can find the love of God. You can be set free. God can help you. And His church and His people, they can and they will help you. We don't hate you. We love you. And because we love you, that's why we can't back, stand back and let you march off the cliff to your death. That goes for anyone, any sinner, anyone outside of Christ. And so we need to remember what Jesus did. Number three, we must learn how to pray. Need to learn how to pray. I don't want you to raise your hand or anything, but how many of us have ever prayed that 
somehow God would intervene and stop the homosexual agenda from moving forward. I think most of us would, even if we're just praying for our leaders to make the right decisions. How many of us have ever prayed that? Well, certainly we want any sinful agenda to be halted. But we need to remember that Satan has taken them as prey. You see, 1 Peter chapter 5, at verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's never a day that goes by when Satan is not hungry, when that roaring lion is not seeking to feed. And he's reached down, if you will, and he has latched his jaws around so many in our own nation and in other parts of the world in regard to the homosexual agenda. We need to remember what is said in the book of Jude, verses 22 and 23. Jude writes and says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the sin. I like those words. It's as though we're reaching down from the pit into the pits of hell and grabbing them and pulling them out just at the nick of time. Snatching them out of the fire. You see, there are so many people in our world who are so close to that point that if they drew their last breath, we know where they're eternity would be spent. They've never obeyed the gospel. They've never sought to live a life of a Christian. And so it's our job to reach down and grab them, get them out of the jaws, get them out of the fire, bring them home. You see, if we are professing ourselves to be Christians and we don't feel an intense hatred and disgust for homosexuality, for sin in general, we really need to get right with God. But at the same time, if we don't feel God's unconditional love toward people, no matter how wicked we may perceive that they are, we need to get right with God. You see... Just to pray that they'll be stopped doesn't go far enough. Because they have been taken captive. They are, they are stuck in the bonds of sin. Number whatever it is, four. We must guard against allowing society to make any sin respectable. You know... <clears throat> If you listen to the, to the TV news or read the newspapers or uh, look on the Internet, society is badgering and threatening and intimidating and legislating and pressuring us in every way to get us to cave in to sin. 
They're doing everything they can. Satan has a great hold on them. And they're trying to get everyone else who would stand against sin to cave in and say it's good and it's right. We must never allow ourselves nor give in to our society who has elevated any sin to a mere lifestyle choice. Listen to what I have to say. You see, sin is not a lifestyle choice. Sin is bondage. Sin is slavery. Romans chapter 6 at verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient servants, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Somebody said, well, you know, it seems like if I become a Christian, I, I, I'm just trading one form of slavery for another. You know, even reading the book of Romans chapter 6, we either sins or, or slaves to sin or slaves to Christ. Somebody says, you know, I, I, really and truly don't, I, I really and truly don't understand that. I just want to be free on my own. And, and in reality, we are trading one form of, uh, of slavery for another, but... When we're in slavery to sin, to Satan, you see, that leads to death. But when we are slaves of Christ, slavery to obedience, <coughs> that leads to life. If you notice back there in Romans chapter 6 at verse 16, he speaks about obeying either of sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness. Notice that term. If you note back in chapter 5, he had just talked about that same phrase, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know about you, but most people's entire life is spent trying to preserve life. Isn't it? There's some who, who could care less, it seems, whether they lived or died, but most people spend their life trying to preserve life. They want to have their health. They want to be able to live a long time here. But no matter how long we live here on this earth, we're not going to live forever here. So why not live to have life on the other side? rather than death, that in eternal separation from God. You see, society tries to, to elevate the level of homosexuality to a lifestyle choice. We can't allow that to happen because of the fact that anyone who is in sin is a slave to sin. But then add to that under the same heading... You know, and one of the ways in which our society is now pushing very hard to make uh, homosexuality a, a, a sin that's uh, not really a sin, it's just a lifestyle choice, it is for years now, the scientific community, or at least some in it, 
have been seeking to identify the gay gene. The Human Genome Project, you know, did some studies, or at least some of the doctors did some studies with that. And since the time that that study began and even pretty much wrapped up and came to a conclusion, there are others who have continued on. And so far, they, some say they have come close, but as yet they haven't found that gay gene. There are a number of incurable genetic diseases. For example, there's Down syndrome, there's cystic fibrosis, there's hemophilia, there's progeria, progeria being the, uh, the disease where a, a small child ages very, very, very rapidly. Sickle cell anemia in, in the African-American community. And none of those, even though there are genes that have been found, none of those have been able to be cured. But the thing about it is, in the Word of God, even if someone could come across what they say is the gay gene, the Bible speaks about a cure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we've already mentioned that today. Do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There were people who were no longer enslaved to sin in certain ways. They're the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the homosexuals, alongside the thieves and the greedy and the drunkards and the revilers. They're washed, they're clean, they're justified in the sight of God. <coughs> Folks, people choose to be idolaters. People choose to be thieves. People choose to be greedy. They choose to be drunkards. They choose to be revilers. They choose to be swindlers. But obedience to God brings relief. People choose to be fornicators, the sexually immoral. People choose to be adulterers. And people choose to be homosexuals. Obedience to God teaching, God's teaching brings relief bring salvation. We must guard against allowing society to make any sin respectable. But then we have to remember what constitutes sin. You're familiar with what is said in James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15, but let's read it together again. James writes these words, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For, he cannot be tempted, uh, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Not too long ago, we preached about temptation. We noted the fact that Jesus himself was tempted, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Jesus himself was tempted, we know, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible just outright says it. In verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The sin is not in the temptation. <clears throat> to observe a person and think that person to be physically attractive is not sin. <clears throat> to dwell on that person's attractiveness and to set our mind on fulfilling our desires with that attractive person becomes lust. You see, that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Christians can't let their minds dwell in a sinful spot. To see someone who is, who, to whom we're attracted, you know, that's not really... Wrong, But to stand there, to sit there, to lie there, to dwell on that to the point that I put myself in a relationship with that person, that's where sin comes in. Jesus didn't say everyone who looks at a woman commits adultery with her in his heart. He said the one who looks with lustful intent. I can't for the life of me understand how a person could look at another person of the same sex with lustful thoughts. But there are some who do. And we as Christians need to remind them there's a difference in viewing a person as attractive and viewing them with lustful thoughts. And like any situation, one cannot allow his attraction to become lust and his lust to become sin. Again, I can't understand. It's, I can't put it in my head how one person of one sex could look at another and be attracted. But I can't understand why some people would want to gamble either. I can't understand for the life of me why some folks would want to get drunk with beer. I've never tasted of it, but I have smelled it. And it's almost sickening just with the smell. You see, we have to understand what constitutes sin. What, is, what difference does that make? Even if there are men who are attracted to men and women who are attracted to women... Like any other Christian, a man who is attracted to a woman or a woman who is attracted to a man, we must learn to control ourselves. Our actions, our thoughts, 
and not give in to any temptation that we might have. Because it's in giving in to the temptation that we become a sinner. Even back in the Old Testament, one who lies with a man, a man who lies with a male, a woman who lies with a woman. In the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter number 1, the, the, the women giving up the natural use of their body, being attracted to one another and committing ungodly acts with one another. Same is true that Paul writes about the men. You see, just because someone looks at another, whether it's of the same sex or a different, doesn't mean they have sinned until they allow their sin to become lust. And they allow their lust to become full-blown sin, which leads to destruction. You see, we as Christians, we have to remember that. And when we remember that, you know, helps us in our own life, for sure. But it also helps others, helps us to deal with others by trying to help them stop before the sin takes place. We're out of time tonight. It's an unfortunate thing, but it's a true thing that Christians are going to have to deal with the sin of homosexuality more and more. Shared with you some numbers that were published in January of this year about the the growing number of those who identify as either uh, lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, or transsexual. And now they've even added a, another category. They put a Q on the end, questioning. It's unfortunate, but it's true that Christians, we're going to have to deal with every kind of sin. One of the things that we as Christians need to be looking forward to more than anything else is the home where there's no kind of sin at all. And one of the things that we have to be thankful for is that we have a Savior who can save us from any kind of sin and from every kind of sin. To think anything other than that is to think outside the realm of what's written in this book. As Christians, we have to be very careful. We don't need to let our mouths run off. We don't need to jump to, to actions that we would regret later in regard to the homosexual matter or any matter. We have to be careful. We're traveling a narrow path, the Bible says, and that path will lead to eternity with God. There are others who are traveling a broad path, allowing anything to go, and their road leads to eternal destruction. 
Our job is to get as many people off the broad road onto the narrow with us. We can't do that by being a person who is so sarcastic or so, you know, just just filled with venom. We can't do it that way. That's not what Jesus showed us in His Word. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins to begin that road, to travel on that road, that narrow road. Maybe you're here and you've done that straight off and you found yourself back on the, on the wrong road. Why not come back to the Lord tonight? If for any reason you're subject to His invitation, why don't you come right now as together we stand and sing. Appreciate everyone's presence this afternoon, and we look forward to seeing everyone Wednesday night as we continue our summer series. If you haven't noticed in the bulletin, we have our guest.